This episode is brought to you by OneSkin, which is my go-to for skincare no matter the weather. Because unlike other products that you need to change up with the seasons, OneSkin products are powered by their scientifically proven peptide called OS1, which reduces the accumulation of damaged aging cells. Basically, instead of masking the issues, OneSkin addresses them at a cellular level, boosting your skin's natural barrier to lock in moisture and help protect against the elements. For a limited time, Birthful listeners will get an exclusive 15% off OneSkin products using the code BIRTHFUL when you check out at oneskin.co. And I 100% recommend OneSkin. Not only does it make my skin feel, act, and appear younger, but friends that I haven't seen for a while are taking notice and asking, what are you doing to your skin? It is that good. And I also love their expanding line. On a day-to-day basis, I use OneSkin Prep to wash my face. Then I apply their OS1 Eye topical supplement around my eyes and their OS1 Face on my face and neck. Or if I know I'm going to be out in the sun for a while, then I use their OS1 Shield, which has an SPF that prevents UV-induced aging and repairs cellular aging all at once. Easy peasy. Get started today with 15% off using code BIRTHFUL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off at oneskin.co with the code BIRTHFUL. And after you purchase, they're going to ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them BIRTHFUL sent you. Help your skin stay younger and healthier for longer with OneSkin. I'm a huge fan of preparation and prevention, and one of the most impactful and immediate ways to influence maternal and infant health is through nourishing nutrition. But honestly, when was the last time any of your providers had a meaningful conversation with you about eating habits and prenatal supplements? Prioritizing nutrition can truly change perinatal health for the better, which is why when talking about prenatal supplements, I'm proud to partner with Needed. They've redesigned the prenatal vitamin from the ground up based on the latest clinical research and in-practice experience of testing thousands of pregnant people's nutrient levels to know what they actually needed, not just to meet some bare minimum needs. And what I always tell my clients is that even though they're called prenatal vitamins, you should continue to take supplements during postpartum and beyond because your body still needs so much nutritional support. I love that at Needed, they understand this and have different plans to make it easy for you to meet your optimal micronutrient, microbiome, and protein needs. They have a fertility support plan, a plan for each of the four trimesters, and a lactation support plan, just to name a few. Needed is recommended by nearly 4,000 doctors, midwives, doulas, and nutritionists, and is proud to be the first perinatal nutrition company that's B Corp and climate neutral certified. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of needed products. 
Welcome to Birthful Mighty Parent or Parent-to-Be. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're starting a new series on nutrition and nourishment, which means that for the next few weeks, we're going to be taking a closer look at how you can use nutrition to best support your baby's growing needs as well as your own. And yeah, it makes sense that we're going to be talking a lot about food in this series, but we'll also look at herbs and the microbiome, morning sickness. We'll talk about how nutrition can help lower your chances of developing health risks during pregnancy and even the challenges that may come up for some of you relating to the weight gain that occurs during this time. First up, and so that means in this episode, I'll be talking with the fabulous Lily Nichols about the problems with one-size-fits-all nutritional recommendations that simply tell you to stay away from raw fish, soft cheeses, deli meats, runny eggs, without explaining the why behind these recommendations and whether avoiding these foods might be keeping you from getting the nutritional elements that you really need. Lily is a registered dietitian slash nutritionist and certified diabetes educator. She's also a researcher, speaker, and the author of two best-selling books, which are called Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. These amazing books have influenced international prenatal nutrition policy. They have been used in research studies and even become required reading in university-level maternal nutrition classes. Needless to say, I highly recommend them, and I always enjoy the opportunity to chat with Lily, not just because she's research-focused, thorough, and critical of outdated dietary guidelines— but because she's also super fun to talk to. Case in point, toward the end of the episode, we talk about three questions to ask yourself. And I'm going to give you a heads up right now that the third question is, how's your energy level? This may not mean much right now, but you can have a good laugh at us when you get to that part. So remember, the third question is, how's your energy level? You're listening to Birthful, here to inform your intuition. Lily, welcome. So happy to have you back on the show. I'm so happy to be back. This is such an important conversation because when you learn that you're pregnant, like most people's first thought is, oh, I can't have alcohol and I probably shouldn't have that much caffeine. And then usually they learn about the broad recommendations to stay away from raw fish and soft cheeses and deli meats and runny eggs, which has some basis because you need to minimize the risk of getting sick from possible bacteria since during pregnancy, your immune system needs to lower its guard a bit in order to host your baby. I know you have done a ton of research on this topic. So let's jump right in. Are these recommendations still valid? I think you set me up perfectly because you already explained the logic behind it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's hard to answer if they're still valid because it it's at the end of the day, there's going to be a risk benefit consideration as to what you eat during pregnancy. From my stance, we want to be looking at how do we meet the nutrient needs of pregnancy and for fetal development? And if they're found in these off-limit foods, could we be doing more harm than good avoiding them? So, you know, when you first talk about, and I'm, I'm going to save like alcohol and caffeine for another discussion because they're in a different category, but if we're just focusing on the food safety 
side of things, which is pretty much what all of those other foods fit into the risk of getting sick from bacteria or virus or parasites, then we really need to start looking at the data. How likely is it that you will get sick from eating raw cheese or soft cheese or eating deli meats or eating fish or eating eggs with runny yolks? And when you actually start looking at the data, it's quite low. And by contrast, when you start looking at how will you meet your nutrient needs if you don't eat that food, in certain cases, you can get into sticky situations nutritionally, especially eggs and fish. And we can go through that if you'd like in more detail. Yeah, I'd love to. But before you do that, because I did read your book and it's amazing. Thank you for creating this great resource and for going through all the research for us. You know, you found that in terms of that risk analysis, we always blame deli meats and runny eggs, say, for some of the bacteria or for, say, like salmonella, where in fact you can get there's a lot of outbreaks from eating raw veggies instead. Right. So let's put let's let's put some numbers behind this. So I'm not just talking in loose, non-specific terms. The when you use the data from the US FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, it's estimated that there will be one case of listeria infection called listeriosis per 83,000 servings of deli meat or 5 million servings of soft cheese consumed by pregnant women. And for eggs, the risk of salmonella, that's the main thing we're concerned about with undercooked eggs, the likelihood that an egg will have salmonella is about one in 30,000. And separate data that's analyzed, the chance that an egg will have salmonella, depending on what sort of farming practices the chickens were raised from, that rate is sevenfold lower in farms that allow their chickens to graze on, on pasture that have time outside. What you would call free range, like in the box, it probably says free range chickens or something like that. I would look for pasture raised because free range, so that, and then we get into all the uh, labeling loopholes with poultry production. But free range means the chicken has access to the outside, so they can be in a confined barn but have a door open. And if the chickens aren't used to going outside, they'll be like afraid to leave their barn and they don't necessarily go outside. But pasture raised chickens spend most of their time outside, so they're not in a confined barn with all sorts of other chicken poop and droppings and things that just breed disease like animals kept in confinement breed disease <laughs> like plain and simple right and that's why they give them antibiotics exactly and then you have to give them antibiotics and yeah, da, da, da. so there's a lot of data on the like rates of salmonella on different farms based on how they do their farming methods and then be um, the need for things like antibiotics in the feed to combat that so yeah, so if you have eggs from happy chickens that had a lot of time outside, so I would look for pasture raised at the grocery store, or if you know somebody in your area that has backyard hens or a small farm where the, the hens are outside most of the time, or at least a, a large portion of their life, the chances they will be sick is very, very slim. And thus, the chances that your egg will have salmonella will be very, very slim. <laughs> so <laughs> thus, the risk of having an egg that, with a runny yolk that if that egg will make you sick, again, that risk will be very, very slim. And this sounds like it, it has to be so many steps down the line for that runny yolk to have salmonella that just saying you should stay away from them altogether 
that that seems a little extreme. And to play devil's advocate, when you look at what actually causes the most cases of food poisoning, fresh fruit and leafy vegetables are the cause of 46% of food poisoning cases in the U.S., And they're the second most frequent cause of hospitalizations due to food poisoning, meaning your food poisoning was so severe that you actually had to be admitted to the hospital. Okay, so if we're really going to be so, quote, careful, then raw fruits and leafy green vegetables should also be off limits. Like, sorry, pregnant women, no watermelon. Sorry, pregnant women, no spinach salads. No, you know, it's like... So where do we draw the line on which foods are risky or not risky? And that's where I say you kind of do have to make this whole risk-benefit equation and be, I think, just make choices on your foods based on what is fresh and safe in your particular area. Like if you're in a situation where you're not sure that something was handled properly and could have become contaminated it doesn't really matter what the food is <laughs> you know like right so we have to be we have to just make a, a smart decision and i think it's sort of undermining judgment and intelligence to just put these whole like subsets of food categories off the table when it's a more nuanced discussion than that and i think the nuance also happens in fact that you know there's hasn't been a question of whether fruit and leafy vegetables are good for you. Like that tends to be a given, although I know we can get into a deeper conversation about sugar contents of fruits and all that. But for a long time, and I'm doing air quotes here, eggs were evil. Yes. <laughs> yes. So what do we know now about eggs? Like what is the new research that brings it up for conversation? So that's a fantastic point. I'm glad you brought it back to this. Now what we're, we're learning about prenatal nutrition, because a, a lot of prenatal nutrition recommendations are like 20 or 30 years behind the research. It's just, it is what it is. We found out in 2015 that the protein requirements for pregnant women are anywhere from 30 something to 70 something percent higher depending on the stage of pregnancy that you're in, based on this new data, (laughs) right? So the science is always evolving, and sometimes the guidelines don't always reflect what the new research is finding. When it comes to eggs in particular, there's probably the most important nutrient they have is uh, something called choline, which is a B vitamin-like compound that has functions in the body alongside folate. So we all know about folate or the synthetic version folic acid and how it can help prevent neural tube defects. Choline has that same effect. Okay. Um, And it also is involved in brain development of, of infants. So we didn't have a choline requirement set until 1998. And even that was based on data from men and then extrapolated for pregnancy. That amount was set at 450 milligrams per day. And now we have new data showing that requirements for choline are probably about double that amount. That actually optimizes brain development. There's been randomized human trials on pregnant women eating certain amounts of choline and and testing the uh, reaction time in infants. And the infants in the group from mothers who had the higher choline intake, they reacted faster 
at all time periods of infancy when they were tested. Okay, so there's this new data showing us that we can really optimize brain development if we give enough choline. The number one food source of choline is egg yolks. Okay, it's like kind of tied. You have egg yolks and liver. They both have a lot of choline. Most people don't eat, eat that much liver. And eggs really are, they're an easy sell. <laughs> they're, they're delicious. They're on the breakfast table of like quite a few people. And the choline is all in the yolks. So if you're going to get anywhere close to meeting your choline requirements, you need eggs. And say you are in the subset of women who only likes their eggs cooked like over easy or over medium or poached with runny yolks. And I'm one of those people, by the way. Say now eggs are off the table. How are they going to meet their choline needs? And also, what's going to replace those eggs on their breakfast table? Will it have an equivalent amount of even just protein if we're going to take it down to basics? Like, what usually replaces eggs? It's often some other breakfast food, which is usually something like cereal or toast or bagels or oatmeal, something that is nutritionally very different, even from the just the basics of, you know, macronutrient breakdown. But when you start getting into the micronutrient difference, it's huge. Right. And people are, are not like substituting it for liver. It's so, so like you mentioned, right. it's substituting it for something that probably has other, you know, raises sugar levels and does other things to your body. Right, exactly. And it's not that those things are like always, you know, a terrible choice. It's just that eggs are a really good choice. And if we're removing them, then we're essentially removing like the number one source of choline from the diet for most people. So like egg eaters on average eat double the amount of choline as non-egg eaters. And that all sounds great. And then you realize that 94% of women don't consume enough choline to begin with. So are we going to deprive them even more by taking eggs with runny yolks off the table? I mean, if you're one of the women who really enjoys scrambled eggs or hard boiled eggs or something, this is a non-issue because those have never been off the table, <laughs> right? But if you are in that group of people who like some runny, then this could make a significant difference to your, to your nutrient intake. Yeah. Bring it back because I'm always going to bring it back to the vegetarian vegan diet because that's the space I live in. So is yeah. there a non-animal sourced form of choline? Yes. Uh, it just happens to be not quite as concentrated in choline. So like the two most concentrated sources of choline are egg yolks and liver by far. So like an ounce of liver or one egg yolk has approximately like 115 to 120 or so milligrams of choline. When you start um, going to plant sources, and if you remember like the, the requirement by current guidelines is 450 milligrams per day. And then what's likely optimal based on the latest data is 930 milligrams is what they've tested in those studies just to kind of put those numbers into perspective. Um, so the non-animal sources would be like beans, quinoa, like about a half cup of those would give you around 20 milligrams to maybe 30 milligrams or so. Um, soy products, quarter cup of almonds provides 18 milligrams, half cup of yogurt provides 20 milligrams, two tablespoons of peanut butter provides 20 milligrams. So it's still so it's, you would have to consume quite a bit of it. You'd have to consume quite a bit of those. Oh, the other one I'm leaving out is um, like cruciferous vegetables, especially Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower. Those will give you about 
30 milligrams in a half cup serving. So, and those are the next best sources of choline, like other than egg yolks and liver. I mean, meat, like general meat, um, seafood will also have, you know, that 20 to 30 or so milligrams in a, in a couple ounce serving. But like these plant sources are, that's as good as you're going to get. <laughs> so when I say like eggs are the primary source, like they really are for most people. Very good. Let's move on to what do you want? Cheeses, deli meats, fish. Let's talk about fish because fish goes into separate topics other than just food safety. All right. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> so tell me about fish. So raw fish. What I found interesting when looking at the data on raw fish was looking at what countries other than the U.S. have to say about raw fish. Because we tend to be like super scared of food and food poisoning in the U.S. and other countries sometimes a little less so. So I found it interesting that in Japan, raw fish is actually a pretty common thing for pregnant women to consume. And in some areas, it's encouraged. I also found it interesting that on the British National Health Service website, they actually state it's usually safe to eat sushi and other dishes made from raw fish when you're pregnant. And the rationale for that is that seafood that's marketed for human consumption undergoes screening for microbes. And thus the safety of commercially available products is actually higher than something where you don't know the source. They also state that flash freezing is used for most sushi grade fish and that inactivates parasites. So both NHS, um, there's a Canadian medical journal that reviewed it, Japan, like there, they seem to think that raw fish is not that big of a deal as long as it is, you know, sushi grade, flash frozen, obtained from a reputable place, stored properly, and you consume it within a reasonable amount of time. So like no leftover sushi, you eat it fresh. <laughs> right. And not like sushi at a potluck. Exactly. Exactly. Not something that's like sat out for many, many hours. You definitely want to have it fresh. It needs to be prepared super hygienically, kept cold, etc. Yeah. The other thing that I found interesting, and I don't know if you've noticed this with clients, but have you noticed that you have clients who have cravings for raw fish or sushi during oh, pregnancy? I hear it all the time because I'm in the labor room, right? And one of the things that invariably comes up while early laboring, especially or after babies, I was like, oh, I'm going to order. I can't wait to eat. And one of the it's either like a big, fat, juicy hamburger or <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. sushi. Yeah. 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 So I remember hearing this from clients and kind of being like, why the sushi? Like it would come up so often, even in people who weren't like crazy sushi fiends. And then it happened to me during pregnancy, too. And I was like, what the heck? I really wanted sushi and like ceviche and like raw fish. So I looked at the data on this because I, I just, there must be something behind it. I feel like a lot of cravings are actually a sign of something like a, your body needs a certain nutrient or there's a dietary imbalance or who knows. But I actually found that with certain types of fish, a mineral in it called selenium is actually higher when the fish is eaten raw. And We'll talk about selenium more in a minute, but selenium plays a role in preventing mercury toxicity. It prevents you from absorbing the mercury. 
The other thing that was more bioavailable from raw fish was omega-3 fats, like the DHA, which is important for your baby's brain development. And also iodine is better preserved when the fish is raw versus when it's cooked. And that iodine is another nutrient that's important for brain development. So I just found it super, super interesting (laughs) that maybe, maybe there's a reason behind it. The one exception though, I, I take to the raw fish thing is I do give caution for raw shellfish. So like clams and oysters, even though I know people love eating raw oysters, um, in the U S anyways, it accounts raw shellfish or undercooked shellfish accounts for 75% of outbreaks of foodborne illness that are associated with seafood. So I'm cautious with raw shellfish, but like from the raw fish, sushi grade stuff we already talked about, I think there's a good reason for these cravings. Mm. I don't think that like, again, I don't think there's ever going to be a case where it's like everybody always forever and ever should never have, you know, raw shellfish during pregnancy. It's just that risk benefit, you know, there, there is a greater chance you will get sick from that. So do you want to risk it? Do you not want to risk it? Can you handle oysters cooked? Will you still eat them if they're cooked or maybe canned? Like they're different, but would you still eat them that way? Like that might be the safer choice. And or a lot of the nutrients you can get from those could be found in other types of seafood as well. So do you want to do that instead? So again, I can't make that decision for everyone, but I did want to uh, point that out for, for the sake of being cautious. No, absolutely. And because we are talking about risk and benefit here, that's the new consideration of it. Right. And then we have to go back to the uh, mercury side of things too, right? Yeah. Did you know that Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths per day? That is so many breaths. Now, according to the EPA, the indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some cases, up to a hundred times more polluted. So then what is the solution for cleaner indoor air? For me, it's Air Doctor and their line of superb air purifiers that have captured the attention of established media outlets such as CNN, Money, ABC, and many more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so that your lungs don't have to. This includes all kinds of pollutants, such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses that can make you sick. Plus, Air Doctor comes with a 30-day Breathe Easy money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code BIRTHFALL to receive up to $300 off air purifiers. And exclusive to podcast listeners, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com dot com so airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code birthful hey mighty one as you approach the journey into birth and parenthood now is the perfect time to make your home a serene and nurturing haven with the help of home threads 
At HomeThreads, you'll discover furniture designed for comfort and functionality, from cozy nursing chairs to versatile baby-friendly storage, as well as a super wide array of options to spruce up any room in your house. Home threads can help make your home the perfect nest for your growing family and at a great value. I so appreciate that wide range of styles that you can find at Home Threads. For example, I was ecstatic when I found a pair of truly stunning mid-century curved walnut dining chairs that somehow perfectly match my home office chair. I mean, what are the chances? These chairs are not only gorgeous in their light green upholstery, but also super sturdy and just so comfortable. I simply adore them. Explore the amazing finds Home Threads has waiting for you. Go to homethreads.com slash birthful and get a code for 15% off your first order. Do make sure to go to our unique URL of homethreads.com slash birthful to get your discount. Home Threads, love where you live. So in the U.S., and I'm sure it's similar in other countries, most pregnant women are told to limit their fish consumption to less than 12 ounces per week. Is it the same where you're at? Yeah, I mean, because it's we're still in the U.S., so it's the general recommendations. Why did I think you weren't in the U.S.? Because <laughs> I'm originally from Venezuela, maybe. But yeah, no, I'm, well, maybe in, that's why. I'm on the I, other side of the country, way I far totally in New York. I thought that you were not in the U.S. I so apologize. Um, I love it. I mean, it's the country is so wide that, you know. It is true. We are kind of in different parts of the country. So it is pretty much a different country. Must have been something I read on your website. Anyways, nonetheless, this limit on fish being less than 12 ounces per week is just a little misguided because this is mostly due to the mercury content of fish. So certain fish can accumulate mercury during their lifespan, because unfortunately, waterways in the ocean is contaminated with mercury. It just is. However, you start limiting seafood consumption, and you also start limiting a lot of micronutrients. So there are certain fish that are high in mercury that probably should just be avoided entirely. So swordfish, king mackerel, tilefish, and shark. Those are like FDA guidelines. I do actually agree with it. Um, they also recommend limiting tuna to less than six ounces per week. And I, I also agree with it. Just the quantity of mercury is quite high. However, there are many other types of fish that are perfectly safe to eat while you're pregnant, even if they contain small amounts of mercury. And that's mainly because of the selenium thing that I mentioned a minute ago. So selenium binds with mercury and prevents it from being absorbed. So when they try to look at if mercury levels are tied entirely to fish consumption, it's not always it's not always a this equals that equation because you don't necessarily absorb it. The other thing to consider is that the size of the fish is the greatest determinant of the mercury content in the fish. So when you have like a albacore tuna, which can weigh up to 130 pounds, and they also live for quite a while, like 13 years, they're going to have more mercury in them than say a sockeye salmon, which weighs less than 15 pounds and lives for less than seven years, or even less so would be like sardines, which are super tiny, like a few ounces. <laughs> I don't know their lifespan off the top of my head. Um, so 
if you are like uber, uber concerned, you go with the smaller fish, bar none, you'll be getting less mercury. Mm, yeah, because also the, the like that tuna ate all those little fish, like it's a big fish. So exactly. it's eating not only the mercury that it absorbs throughout a long time, because the mercury doesn't really like get processed through their body and goes away. It's oh, accum- it accumulates. Yeah. Right, it accumulates. So the older they are and the bigger they are, the more mercury they've eaten. Exactly. Exactly. And when we start looking at, okay, does the 12 ounce limit even make sense? There was a really good study um, that looked at 12,000 mother infant pairs and fish consumption during pregnancy and then neurodevelopment in um, the children. And they found that women who consumed more than 12 ounces per week, they had children with better IQ, better communication skills. And the worst cognitive outcomes were among children whose mothers consumed zero seafood during pregnancy. And they had more problems with fine motor skills, social development, and communication skills. So even though the mercury intake as a whole was higher among fish-eating mothers, it appears that the nutritional benefits and probably the selenium that helped bind the mercury offset some of that exposure. So we do need to consider what's in seafood. And everybody always wants to point the finger at DHA, the omega-3 um, that's really common in seafood. And definitely, but I'm not going to like discount that. That is part of the equation. DHA is very important to brain development. And we have a lot of science behind that. But there's other nutrients in there as well. So you have A, you know, a source of complete protein. You have vitamin D. You have uh, trace minerals like iodine, zinc, and selenium, like iodine probably being the most important one for brain development. You have iron. You have a lot of things in there other than just omega-3 <laughs> that could be playing a role in, um, in these positive effects on brain development. And the importance also to eat, because you're only going to eat so much food a day, <laughs> try to consume something that is very nutrient-rich so that you get exactly. not just the one thing, but you get a variety. Exactly. I do want to talk about fat, but before we move on to that, is there anything in the conversation of safety and outdated or or more commonly recommended things to avoid that we'd forgotten about? I feel like we summed it up pretty well. I would just sort of to tie it up, bring it back to common sense about food safety. You just have to have, like, use your nose. There's a reason our sense of smell is super heightened during pregnancy. I know for me, if anything smelled even the slightest bit off, there was no chance I was going to be able to eat it. <laughs> so... Use your nose. If it smells funny, don't eat it. And be um, really picky about where you purchase your perishable food and how you store it and how you cook it. You know, keep your kitchen super clean. I'm like, I'm not a germaphobe, but when I'm in the kitchen, I'm washing my hands all the time and wiping down the counters all the time. Like things get cross-contaminated. So be cautious with that. I will say though, that the number one place that you're going to get some sort of foodborne illness is actually um, restaurants are ready to eat meals. So a lot of it isn't your own house, but somewhere else. So in those situations, that comes back to the choosing reputable establishments and using your nose. <laughs> so yeah. I think I'll leave it at that. Yeah. And oh, and that totally reminded me, the one thing that uh, that I was reading in your book that I was like, oh, this is super interesting. It makes total sense. And it's such an easy to thing to do is to avoid pre-cut fruit. And if you're doing fruit, do the whole fruit and then cut it yourself and eat it fresh and keep it all the, you know, all the recommendations. 
Yes, the pre-cut vegetables and fruit is much more likely to be contaminated with pathogens than if you do it yourself. So like get your veggies, like rinse them off, clean them off, and then cut them in your own sanitary house. It's like once the fruit is cut, I mean, you know this, you can have an apple on the counter for weeks and it'll be fine. But once you cut it open, then it starts going bad much quicker. It's like the same thing with stuff in the grocery store. So you don't know when it was cut, how long it's been sitting there. Did the person transfer it to the cooler or the fridge right away? Or was it like sitting out on the cart in the grocery store for a while? It's just there's many more steps that it's been handled by more people and transferred from one location to the other more often. You just don't know the conditions it was in. So yeah, if you're going to do pre-cut stuff, um, I would do it maybe for cooked things that may be fine, but I'd be really cautious with pre-cut veggies and fruits you're going to eat raw. Mm -hmm. And then I also remember about raw cheeses. And you mentioning that artisanal cheesemakers are under such scrutiny that they tend to have even less of a bacterial content than the pasteurized soft cheese. Yes. Yeah. There was a really interesting study out of Vermont and they looked at um, raw milk artisan cheese producers and they didn't find a single sample positive for listeria, salmonella, or the super dangerous strain of E. coli known as 0157H7, the one that was like, it hit headlines back in the 90s from um, Burger King. It's really, really bad. <laughs> so the, they didn't get a single sample positive for them despite repeat sampling and in warm summer months. Raw milk producers are under such strict scrutiny because they can't rely on pasteurization to kill bad bacteria if their milk gets contaminated they run squeaky clean operations not to mention most of them if they're doing grass-based like pasture-raised operations and the cows are not in confinement with other cows there's just going to be much less transfer of disease and bacteria and stuff from one to the other so yeah if you can find reputable raw cheese producer and you're comfortable eating it i say go for it if you're not comfortable eating it we have pasteurized cheese available and it's also totally fine. So <laughs> again, your call, but I just want to make people a little less freaked out about the whole uh, raw dairy thing. No, it's the whole fear-based stuff that gets me. So, and and this empowers you because you got to do your research. You got to figure out where your cheese comes from and talk to your exactly. farmers. And so all kinds of good things from that. Yes. All right. So then fats. <laughs> I've always had such a like, scare hate relationship with fat all my life right because yeah. I was born in the 70s and so forth and like eggs they were like you wanted to avoid it no matter what tell us what we need to know about fats yes uh you are not the only one who <laughs> who had extreme fear of fats because if you mean pretty much if you were born anytime in the 70s or after you were you were growing up right around the time that the low-fat U.S. dietary guidelines came out. That was 1980. And all we heard was that, you know, fat is going to make you gain weight and give you heart disease and diabetes and all these bad things. And it was taken out of our foods and we were fed this processed cardboard stuff instead or real food that was super tasteless because we couldn't put butter on it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah. You'll also hear that fat should be some people believe that fat should be limited in the diet during pregnancy. But if you really start to sort of peel back the layers on these recommendations, you see there's not as much 
support for this way of eating during pregnancy than, than you would think. So for one, your body's need for fat soluble vitamins and other nutrients found in high fat foods goes up during pregnancy. So we talked about choline already, mainly egg yolks and liver, which have a pretty decent quantity of fat in them. Vitamin A needs also go up during pregnancy and about one third of pregnant women at least don't consume enough vitamin A during pregnancy. And just to bring it back to the liver thing, because it's a super nutrient-dense food and a great source of vitamin A, in women who don't consume liver, 70% don't need the recommended dietary allowance for vitamin A. So you start restricting fatty foods, or you could also like lump in high cholesterol foods into this category, and you also start limiting the intake of some of these nutrients. Because food isn't just a single nutrient and that's it. It's always with other things. Fat is always packaged with other things. And when you start looking at how did traditional cultures eat and which foods did they emphasize, they were not shying away from the high fat foods. And oftentimes the high fat foods were the ones that were really emphasized for mothers. So it's funny how we've taken this full 180. And you mentioned that fats can always go with some other things. But actually, before we move on to that, like, are all fats created equal? Oh, that's a very good question. So there are many different types of fats. So we have set, a lot of it is, is related to like, the chemical structure of the, they call them fatty acids, the things that make up the fat in the food. So you have saturated and unsaturated fats. And then beyond that, you have specific types of saturated and unsaturated fats. So you have like monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, you have specific polyunsaturated called like omega-3s and omega-6s. And foods are all a combination of different fatty acids. We think of like, oh, butter is a saturated fat. And it's like not pure saturated fat. It has a lot of other different types of fat in it as well. Lard is another great example, which is pork fat. People think that that is just saturated fat. It actually has more monounsaturated fat in it, the type that you find in olive oil, than it does saturated fat. But because we have lumped this, you know, animal fats are saturated, plant fats are not into these categories, we have this really <laughs> bizarre interpretation of where we find them in our foods. For the most part, like fats in unprocessed foods are good for you. Okay. It just, we, we've got to keep it simple. They're just good for you. It's totally fine. They're benign. Um, when you start processing fats and removing them from their original food source, and then especially when you start changing the way that they behave, and I'm going to use like trans fats as a specific example, you start running into some problems. <laughs> so I'll use two examples of fats that probably shouldn't be a large part of a pregnancy diet based on their processing and the fatty acids they contain. One is processed vegetable oils or like seed oils. So corn, soybean, peanut, safflower, canola, cottonseed oil. These, most of us call them vegetable oils. It's not like they squeeze broccoli and get these oils out. They like gather the seeds. I shouldn't say gather because it's not like somebody's in the field gathering them. You have giant machinery that <laughs> collects these seeds and then it goes through crazy industrial processes to actually get the fat out of them. Like you can't like take a soybean and squeeze it and get oil out of it the way that 
you like run your hand on like a cut avocado and it has an oily slick. Like you have to process the crap out of them. Or even like <laughs> coffee beans are probably more oily yeah. than, <laughs> than what you feel yes. out of like flax seeds. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So they have to be um, very processed to actually extract the oil. And these fats are very high in a certain type of fat called omega-6. And omega-6 is uh, sort of the the counterpart to omega-3. Omega-3s tend to be anti-inflammatory. Those are like, that includes like the DHA that's good for brain development. Omega-6 fats, while they do serve a purpose in our body, um, humans up until the last like 50 or so, 100 or so years, we weren't consuming massive quantities of omega-6 fats because we didn't have the technology to extract oils out of these seed crops at the level that we do these days. So there's become this sort of dietary imbalance in the quantity of omega-6 fats that we're consuming. And unfortunately, it's uh, rather inflammatory for, for our system. So when you start looking at pregnancy specifically, when you start eating more omega-6 fats, you have an imbalance in the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio that gets in the way of DHA getting uh, incorporated in the right quantities in the fetal brain. So it can play a role in in messing up brain development. Omega-6s have been found to cause a surge in pro-inflammatory compounds called eicosanoids that are uh, associated with preterm labor. So if there's any risk for preterm birth, you want to steer clear vegetable oils. They've shown that in mothers who eat a lot of them, the motor development of their babies is, is delayed. Uh, and also it can cause some issues in placental function. So it seems because they're inflammatory, it seems to play a role in some of the sort of pathological things that are going on with preeclampsia. So just not a good idea (laughs) to have a massive quantity of these in in our diets. You get plenty of omega-6s in our diets without having any vegetable oils ever. Um, in the diet. And I'm talking about the uber processed ones that you buy in the bottle, the big clear bottle at the grocery store that has vegetable oil that's used for frying. I'm not talking about, you know, putting some flaxseed oil or avocado oil in a salad or something like that. I'm talking about the the industrial processed ones used for for uh, cooking and frying. And then the other ones are the partially hydrogenated oils where they take these vegetable oils, turn them into a solid in a process called hydrogenation, and you end up with the fats that are used in Crisco, like shortening, and margarine. And those ones are really, really bad. I don't even think I need to go through the data on it, but they are absolutely man-made fat products that play zero role in our health. And they, um, even to a greater degree than the the vegetable oil omega-6s, just mess up placental function and nutrient transport across the placenta. They interfere with um, the function of omega-3s. They take the place of saturated fats and cell membranes. So you have our cells aren't talking to each other properly. They're just bad. Everything other than those two categories of fats is fair game. <laughs> Seriously, fair game. And is definitely beneficial to have, you know, just enough fat in the prenatal diet. And most of those oils and then end up becoming, or those fats end up becoming animal-based. What about, so this is on my own personal curiosity, in terms of vegetable-based oils, you mentioned avocado oil. Yep. And, you know, there's like olive oil and coconut oil. Are those super fair game? And also, are there any 
things that we need to know about when using them to cook food, like when you heat them up to higher temperatures, oh, yeah. do they change or, yeah. Yeah, good question. Yeah, those three, all fantastic. So um, olive oil, avocado oil, coconut oil, fantastic. The most stable fats for cooking tend to be saturated fats. They don't aren't as susceptible to getting damaged from high heat. So that would mean coconut oil would be by far your most stable plant fat to cook with. Uh, olive oil and avocado oil wouldn't be terrible choices. They are, they are mostly monounsaturated fats and they are less susceptible to damage from heat than like some of those vegetable oils that I was talking about earlier. And so those would be okay for like low heat cooking, but for high heat cooking, I would do coconut oil. Like if you're going to do like, say you're going to do, you made some bean burgers or something and you want to fry them up in your frying pan, I'd probably use coconut oil because the pan is relatively empty. Um, so the fat is being heated to a higher temperature and it just wouldn't be as likely to be um, damaged. Other oils like nut and seed oils that are processed well. So like extra virgin nut and seed oils versus the, you know, processed category we were talking about earlier. So that would be like almond oil, sesame seed oil, walnut oil, all of those ones. They are more heat sensitive. And I would use those for things like salads, pesto, or like drizzling on dishes, but I wouldn't use those ones for cooking. Awesome. Thank you for answering it. That's like my own very personal question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's not all it. about it's not all about animal fats. It's like plant fats from, you know, that are sourced properly that aren't overprocessed are are also good. <laughs> so, yeah, very good question. So then, let's get into a little bit more of those micronutrients and what one of your mantras that came up or that really resonated with me in the book is yeah. to try to eat proteins and fat together at pretty much every meal. Yeah. Tell me more about that. The reason for that is satiety. Well, just pay attention that just from a mindful eating perspective, like pay attention to how you feel after eating particular foods. If you eat a piece of bread by itself, or a plain bowl of oatmeal, how soon are you hungry? And it's usually relatively quickly, um, because those two food examples are mostly carbohydrates, and carbohydrates digest relatively quickly. They cause a spike in your blood sugar, followed by a, a relatively rapid drop, and it leaves you hungry for more food. I mean, it's physiologically the normal response to that situation. Whereas if you were to combine those foods with something that has, you know, fat and or protein, I say I use them together because in nature, they usually come together, like with the exception of when we separate fat from its natural food source, it like it comes together, like milk comes with fat, avocados, have fat in them. <laughs> like olives have fat in them. Uh, chicken has a skin on it, which has a lot of fat, right? So they tend to come packaged um, with each other. So if you were to have that bread with, say, some peanut butter or almond butter, which has a good quantity of both fat and protein in it, your blood sugar response and all of the satiety hormone response to your meal would be, or snack, I guess, it's not quite a full meal, would be very different than having just carbs all by itself. So when I'm saying like have fat and protein at every meal, it's not that that needs to be like the largest portion of the 
meal or snack is just make an effort to include some because it is very, very easy to just graze on carbs for the entire day. It's really easy to just go from like, oh, a piece of toast here. Oh, I'm hungry again. Oh, some fruit here. Oh, some pasta here. It's like carbs are in so many different foods and they digest so quickly and keep our hunger and cravings revved up for the whole day that you kind of in some ways have to go out of your way to not be eating just like pure carbs, <laughs> particularly for people who, who don't enjoy or eat much um, animal foods. You sometimes have to make an extra effort to make, you know, some of the higher protein options a greater priority. So it's a good idea to, if you're having those carbs, to also have them with some shared protein so that the effect lasts longer. Am I, am I hearing that right? Yeah. So having fat and protein tend to kind of blunt the blood sugar response you have to carbohydrates, but they also take longer to digest and keep you full longer. And it's kind of, I mean, you could just play the experiment yourself. Like one morning, have a plain piece of toast with nothing on it and see how you feel. Like how soon are you hungry? What are you hungry for? How's your energy levels? <laughs> and then the next day, have an egg or two with that piece of toast and see what the response is. And it's usually uh, vastly different. Mm, I love those questions. How soon are you hungry? What are you hungry for? And I can't remember the third one already. <laughs> uh, I can't remember the third one already either. <laughs> we'll have to go back on the recording. This is pathetic. That's how I... <laughs> yeah, the, it really is a matter of like, we blame ourselves so much for this, whatever our cravings and eating habits are. And I'm not saying in every instance it is this, but in many instances, this insatiable need to eat all the time and the cravings for especially like sugary foods or like pick-me-ups, things with caffeine, really carby snacks like chips and stuff. That is a response to an imbalance in our blood sugar. Like if you eat something super high carb by itself, you get a spike and then a massive drop in your blood sugar. Your physiological response is, oh my gosh, my blood sugar is too low. I'm going to starve. I need to eat something else. And up until again, like when we start looking at when food started getting processed, like the last like 50, 100 or so years, at least like ultra processed food, you know, sugar wasn't a huge part of our diets. Even grains weren't a massive part of our diets until relatively recently, and certainly not in the form of white flour produced products. Just like all of these new innovations in food, which happen to be super, super delicious and palatable. <laughs> those are kind of new to our physiology. And so we kind of have to take a step back and, and be, you know, conscious of that. Yeah. And that makes absolute sense to me because it's kind of the same approach that I take towards the birthing process. Right. Right. It's yeah. like, what did we do for those thousands of years before 1950? <laughs> <Right>? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And also, you know, to make that correlate with the birthing process, like, how do you feel doing it this way or that way? Like, does it feel better for you to birth in this way or that way? Does it feel good to have like coached pushing and be on your back? Like some people do great birthing on their back and some people don't, right? <laughs> but, you know, we also have to like not undermine, you know, this, this idea that like our bodies are smart and they'll kind of tell us what is going to work and what's not going to work. And that's why I try to build in a lot of mindful eating into stuff. Like, hey, if you feel fantastic having 
plain toast by itself, then like, great, do that. <laughs> For the vast majority of people, that doesn't work out. But if you are the exception to the rule, like run with it, my friend. Um, but we also have to think about, you know, physiologically, what makes sense with our like blood sugar, hormonal satiety cues and all that and um, honor that. Yeah. And I really appreciate that tuning into your body and figuring out what your body needs and uh, along with knowing the information and getting the research because the information on its own can be so overwhelming if you're looking at how many grams of this and how many grams of that and what is the source and where is it coming from and you know we didn't even touch and that's a different (laughs) that's a whole different conversation of like prenatal vitamins and supplements right but that's also why this podcast tagline is to inform your intuition because there's always that huge part of tune in with yourself, figure out what sits right for you and what's resonating right. and how you're feeling exactly. yeah, with the information. A good example on that one, just to touch on something really quickly is like the, like iron supplements, for example, like a lot of the iron supplements that they prescribe for pregnant women is just like a really poorly absorbed form of iron. And most people quit taking their iron supplements because the side effects become quote debilitating, right? So if you're not listening to your body and you're just like, well, I was told to do this, so this is the right way to do it. And this is how I'm going to do it. But your body is rejecting it. Maybe it's time to consider, well, where are you going to get your iron? Maybe the supplement isn't the right one for you. And maybe there's a different form of iron to consider. Maybe there's a way you can optimize the iron from your diet or optimize the absorption of the iron from your diet. You know, like if something isn't working, it doesn't make sense to fight against our bodies for for any of the stuff, whether it's food or supplements or, you know, exercise during pregnancy or even, you know, birth. So yeah, because we don't want to increase stress. We want to help. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I love the, you know, the concept that you just brought up of bioavailability. That's such a key word for any supplements to understand what that means. Absolutely. So I do encourage people to like get your book because it's such a great resource of telling you what form of iron is more bioavailable and what is not. Or the whole, you know, topic of avoid folic acid and go for folate, which was not the recommendation 10 years ago. Right. A lot of stuff is shifting with new data, really, with new data and better understanding of all the complex biological processes going on unbeknownst to us inside of our bodies. Yeah. The whole purpose of writing the book was really to sort of synthesize, A, all this data I read. I mean, there are thousands of research studies that I went through when I wrote the book, hence why there's like over 900 and 30 plus citations in there. (laughs) Those are the ones that made the cut. Whenever you even say that, like that you have 900 something footnotes, my brain automatically cringes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I kind of cringe looking back at it. I'm just like, oh man, how did I, I've tried to sort of shut off that part of my brain now just for a little bit. It is absolutely bonkers, but um, nonetheless, My goal was to do that work so you don't have to, but I really made an attempt to make it as simple to understand as possible. Like, let me synthesize all of this information for you and put it into some actionable step, but at the same time, not water down the information because I feel like I know other women felt this way because I've heard about it. I know during my pregnancy, I felt like the information I was given was so 
basic. It was almost insulting. It was like, okay, yeah, I know there's more to it than this like two page pamphlet on prenatal nutrition, which pretty much tells me don't eat these foods. Doesn't tell me why, doesn't tell me the nuance of it, probably is incorrect, and also doesn't tell me what to eat. Like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll avoid these foods. Now what do I eat? It's like all the emphasis is, well, as we were talking about earlier, very much fear-based instead of empowering, you know, like, let's give you all the information. You are smart enough to make your own judgment call on what's going to work for you or not. Here is the, you know, trade-offs of making said judgment call and like, Go forth, you know. And you even give people menu plans. Like, <laughs> you know, there's. I do. Uh, yeah, I find that it was really refreshing to read that it had all the levels of as however deep you wanted to delve into the topic. You yeah. could go at that level. You could just look at the menu plans and just go like, oh, browse through it and just pick and choose. Or you could follow the rabbit hole with your footnotes and do all the research yourself. You allowed for all that level of engagement. Well, thank you. Yeah. That no. was one of my concerns is that it would be uh, a little too detailed because you start going down the rabbit hole and it's hard to come back up. I did see that in terms of prenatal vitamins, you didn't put any recommendations in the book. You just said, look, this is changing all the time. Here's a link on my website where you can see. I'll I'll keep it up to date there. Go and check it out. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I didn't I didn't want the information to be um, incorrect say a brand changes their version of folate, I would be upset if my recommendation was now incorrect. Yes. Yeah. So no, that was super neat. Lily, thank you so, so much for this talk today. Lots of fun. Hey, thank you. That was registered dietitian, nutritionist, and author Lily Nichols, who is passionate about evidence-based prenatal nutrition, mindful eating, and prioritizing quality and sustainability in everything she eats. You can find Lily on Instagram at LilyNicholsRDN. And you can connect with us at Birthful Podcast. In fact, we would just really love it if you would stop and take a screenshot of this episode right now, if you're not driving, and post it to Instagram sharing your biggest takeaway from the episode. Make sure to tag at Birthful Podcast so we can see it and amplify it. You can find the in-depth show notes and transcript of this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about my birth and postpartum preparation classes and download your free postpartum preparation plan. Birthful is created and produced by me, Adriana Lozada, with production assistance from Asia Plati. Thank you so, so very much for listening and sharing Birthful. Be sure to follow us on Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and everywhere you listen. And come back for more ways to inform your intuition.